0: a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. Next week, June 6th, 2022, will mark the 78th anniversary of the D-Day landings. In honor of the enormous sacrifice by the many men and women who fought, planned, and supported that battle, today the History Guy tells three lesser-known tales of heroism and sacrifice, just a few of the many meaningful stories of those first days in the battle to crack Fortress Europe. First. The History Guy tells the story of two D-Day medics, Robert Wright and Kenneth Moore, who spent those days saving lives. Then, the History Guy will tell the oft-forgotten story of the Coast Guard's contribution to the massive invasion. Finally, the History Guy will talk about the US Rangers and the 116th Infantry Regiment. Without further ado, let me introduce
1: the History Guy. It is June the 6th, the anniversary of Operation Neptune, the Allied amphibious invasion of the beaches of Normandy, France. 73 years ago today, more than 150,000 troops, American, British, and Canadian, assaulted five beaches in the beginning of the operation to liberate fortress Europe. But in addition to the 150,000 troops on the beaches, the Allies dropped thousands of paratroopers behind the lines with jobs to take strategic positions to cut off German reinforcements and to facilitate connecting the Allied beachheads. Over 13,000 American paratroopers were dropped during D-Day. And among the first were 6,900 of the 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. And of all the stories of heroism on D-Day, none is more interesting than the story of two medics of the 101st Airborne Division, Robert Wright and Kenneth Moore. Bob Wright and Ken Moore were both 19-year-old privates in the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division. Angered by Pearl Harbor, Moore had signed up in high school and he volunteered for the paratroops because they got extra pay, 50 bucks a month, and because the paratrooper uniform was supposed to attract girls. It sounded glamorous, he said, adding, it never occurred to me that they would make us jump out of airplanes. After training in the United States, they were moved to England in January of 1944. The island was so covered with troops and equipment that the paratroops joked that the only thing holding the island up was the barrage balloons. D-Day would be their first taste of combat. Wright and Moore were dropped behind Utah Beach in what was called Drop Zone D. The C-47 Dakotas carrying the paratroops took heavy flak and many of the paratroops died in the planes and never even got a chance to jump. Two of the three division commanders of the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment never made it to the ground. When Moore jumped out of his plane, he was near the back and the plane was only 300 feet off the ground. He said his parachute barely opened before he hit the ground. Much of the drop zone had been pre-registered for German fire and so they were taking casualties from the get-go. Moore recalled being shot at the moment he hit the ground. You realize, he said, that someone is trying to kill you. Wright and Moore were both senior medics. They jumped that day with first aid kits, but no weapons. While there were medics, their medical training was limited. Moore had only gotten two weeks of medical training. Their training and their job, he said, was to stop the bleeding. They had been dropped near the tiny hamlet of angleville au plain The 101st mission in the area was to cut off the main road between Cherbourg and Paris, and thus cut off the German reinforcements to the beach defenses. The tiny hamlet only had a population of about 80, and it was dominated by a small, stone, 12th century Romanesque church. The paratroopers dug into their positions while Wright and Moore converted the church into an aid station, and immediately casualties started coming in. To this day, you can still see bloodstains on the pews of the church at Angovillon Plaine. The fighting was brutal. This was Bocage country, and the hedgerows offered plenty of places for snipers and machine guns to hide. The road going in front of Angoville-Oplan was critical, and so the village became a centerpiece of the combat. Wright and Moore followed the rules of the Geneva Convention. They treated troops from both sides, as well as civilians, too. Two small girls from the village were wounded by mortar fragments. They treated them both. One survived. They would stabilize the wounded as best they could, and then they would risk their lives to go out into the fields and search for more wounded. Their Red Cross armbands offered them some protection from enemy fire. They used a wheelbarrow from a farm to help carry the wounded back to the church. In the heaviest fighting, the lightly armed paratroopers were pushed back and had to withdraw from the village. But Wright and Moore refused to leave the wounded, and so they stayed behind. When the Germans discovered them, they saw that they were treated wounded from both sides, and so let them be. A German officer came in and asked if he could bring in more of his wounded. They obliged. They treated men, they said, not uniforms. The only rule was that soldiers had to leave their rifles at the door. The church was often in the crossfire, sometimes from American troops who thought it was occupied by the Germans. All of the windows were shot out. They've since been replaced with stained glass representations of paratroopers. A mortar shell hit the roof and caused more injuries amongst the wounded inside. It cracked the flagstone floor of the church, and that scar can still be seen in the church today. A piece of the falling roof hit Moore on the head and made him bleed, and for that he was awarded the Purple Heart. He had treated so many seriously wounded that day that he said he was embarrassed to take it. The two worked for three days straight and never slept in that time. And in perhaps the most surprising incident of the time, after about two days, two Germans came down from the church steeple and surrendered to them. Apparently they had been in the church the entire time and they didn't know about it. The Germans were finally pushed back for the last time on June 8th. And in those three days, Wright and Moore had saved more than 80 lives. Both were awarded silver stars for the action. There are so many stories of heroism in the invasion of the Normandy beaches. The, uh, the story of Dick Winters and the 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment taking the artillery, so well described in Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers or the forgotten story of the African-American 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion that was described in Linda Hairview's book, Forgotten, or the amazing story of Juan Pujols, the Spanish double agent who played such a critical role in the deceptions that tied down thousands of troops that was written in Stephen Talty's wonderful book, Agent Garbo. But the story of Wright and Moore is very interesting because in the midst of all that shooting, they never picked up a rifle. As author Tim Gray states in the book that he wrote about the two called Angels of Mercy, compassion was their ammunition. Ken Moore passed away in 2014. At his request, his ashes were dropped from an airplane, one last jump for a veteran paratrooper. And Bob Wright died in 2013. At his request, his remains are buried in a small churchyard next to a small church in France. And you can still see that gravesite today.
0: Next up, the History Guy is going to tell the story of the Coast Guard's life-saving work while soldiers were landing on the beaches at Normandy. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat
1: with the History Guy. 231,000 men and 10,000 women served with the United States Coast Guard during the Second World War. 1,918 of them would die in that service. The Coast Guard took its first casualty the day after Pearl Harbor when the Coast Guard manned transport Leonard Wood was bombed by the Japanese Navy in Singapore. And while the Coast Guard served many roles throughout the war, they never forgot their central role of search and rescue. 1,500 survivors of torpedo attacks were rescued by Coast Guard cutters boats and planes off the coasts of America during the war, a thousand more were rescued by Coast Guardsmen who were performing their duty as convoy escort but about 1400 more were saved by Coast Guardsmen in a little-known flotilla that played a notable role in the largest amphibious invasion in history. The story of Rescue Flotilla One, the Matchbox Fleet, is a story that deserves to be remembered. After the Axis Powers invaded the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa in June of 1941, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin started pressing for the Western Allies to open a second front in Western Europe. That would require the largest amphibious assault in world history, and it would take time to gather the strength to make such an attack. Two invasion plans for 1942, codenamed Operation Roundup and Operation Sledgehammer, were both deemed impractical and unlikely to succeed, and the disastrous Operation Rudder, better known as the Raid on Dieppe, demonstrated the high cost and impracticality of trying to take a well defended port. The Allies instead opted to invade what they perceived to be a more vulnerable French North Africa in 1942. Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt met in Washington DC in May of 1943 and agreed that the invasion of Western Europe would occur in a year's time. The leaders discussed the initial plans for that invasion when they met again in Quebec City in Canada in August of that year. While they briefly considered an invasion through Norway, tentatively called Operation Jupiter, they settled on an invasion of France, calling the plan Operation Overlord. Operation Overlord was the codename for the overall Allied plan to establish a large-scale lodgment on the continent of Europe. Invading German occupied Western Europe and establishing a second front would distract Hitler's armies who were fighting the Soviets in the east and offer a path for the liberation of Paris and the invasion of Germany itself. It was a massive operation, eventually including 39 divisions and more than a million troops. Overlord was a multi-faceted plan that included major operations like Operation Point Blank, a portion of the Allied Bomber Offensive intended to set the stage for the invasion, and Operation Bodyguard, the complex deception plan designed to mislead the German High Command as to the timing and place of the invasion. But by far the most complex and challenging part of the plan was codenamed Operation Neptune, the Allied landings on the beaches of Normandy, France that today is better known as D-Day. The scope of Operation Neptune was staggering, nearly 7,000 vessels were involved. By comparison, the great Spanish Armada of 1588 included 130 ships. Only some 850 ships had been used in the invasion of North Africa the year before. 160,000 Allied troops were landed by sea and parachute along those 50 miles of coastland on June 6, and they were supported by 195,000 sailors manning the massive invasion fleet. And Winston Churchill realized that some of those men were gonna wind up in the water. Purportedly some weeks before the invasion he lamented to President Roosevelt that the invasion fleet had no rescue flotilla, but with all of the resources already committed how could they put together such a flotilla in such a short period of time? FDR responded, we already have such a group, the United States Coast Guard. The Coast Guard already had a significant role in Operation Neptune, showing their skill at small boat handling by operating many of the landing craft that ferried the landing force under fire to the beaches but of course the Coast Guard had traditionally played the role of rescuing people at sea. Vice Admiral Russell R. Weish, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, suggested that the coastal patrol boats being used for anti-submarine service along the U.S. East Coast were the best fit for the proposed flotilla. Sixty 83-foot cutters from what was called the Matchbox fleet were selected, and transported piggyback on freighters to the UK, where they were formed into Rescue Flotilla 1, based at Poole, England, and modified for service as Rescue Craft. The 83-foot cutter had been designed in 1940. Contracted to the Wheeler Shipyard in Brooklyn, New York, the first order of 40 cutters entered service in 1941, and by the end of 1944 a total of 230 were produced for the Coast Guard. They were designed for coastal convoy escort, anti-submarine duty and search and rescue. The 83 foot 2 inch long vessels were wooden hulled and their two screws were powered by two inline eight cylinder Sterling Viking II gasoline engines, each of which produced 600 horsepower, along a top speed of 20 knots. They were commonly called matchboxes because of the dangerous combination of gasoline and wood. They had a displacement of 76 tons, a beam of 16 foot 2 inches and a draft of 5 foot 4 inches. In normal World War II configuration they mounted a 20 mm gun aft and depth charge racks, although the racks were removed for the role in Operation Neptune. The normal crew complement was 13. The 60 cutters of Rescue Flotilla One had their Coast Guard call signs removed and for the sake of communication simplicity were renamed CGC-1 through 60. 30 were assigned to the American sector, Omaha and Utah beaches, and 30 to the British sector, Gold, Juno and Sword beaches. Although the Coast Guard operated several vessels on D-Day, Rescue Flotilla 1 represented nearly two-thirds of those. Their job was straightforward, as Flotilla veteran Jack Hamlin explained, be nothing but just be a lifeguard, he said, we were not there to destroy anybody, to kill anybody, we were there to just do rescue operations, and that's what we did. At Poole the crews had received special training including extensive first aid training, it would prove critical on June 6th. Their task was dangerous, they were accompanying the assault boats and would have to brave enemy fire and obstacles many times on their rescue runs. The seas were rough and the tiny boats had to maneuver around the larger craft. CGC-16, nicknamed the Homing Pigeon, got to work early, picking up survivors from a landing craft disabled by the choppy seas in the assembly area before the landing even began. As the crew neared Omaha Beach, they rushed to the rescue of the crew of an anti-aircraft ship, which had been destroyed by German fire. No sooner had they pulled those survivors on board when a German shell destroyed a nearby patrol boat. Rushing to their rescue, the tiny cutter, intended to carry no more than 20 wounded, was crammed with 90 rescued men. They returned them to the hospital ship and went back to the beach. One of the CGC-16's crew climbed aboard a burning transport loaded with the ammunition to rescue a sailor whose legs had been severed by a shell. He rescued the man and the craft sunk less than two minutes later. Many of the men were seriously injured and the first aid was left up to CGC-16's cook, who applied tourniquets and administered morphine from the ship's medical locker. By the end of the day the crew of CGC-16 had pulled 126 men from the English Channel, the largest number saved by any of the Coast Guard Matchbox Fleet that day. For their heroism, the crew of CGC-16 were awarded the Bronze Star. CGC-1 came upon a sunken British landing craft two miles offshore, they pulled 24 soldiers and four Royal Navy sailors from the Channel. The Coast Guardsmen had to jump overboard and tie lines to the freezing survivors because they were too cold to help themselves aboard. Later CGC-1 rescued 19 survivors from another sunken landing craft, 14 of whom were fellow Coast Guardsmen. CGC-34 rescued another 32 British soldiers and seamen in the British sector. The process could be slow, many of the men being rescued were injured and the soldiers were weighted down with heavy packs. It took time and all the crew's strength to carefully lift them on board while under fire. The boats had to carry survivors back to hospital ships 10 miles offshore, in the choppy waters and loaded with casualties, the cutters could barely make 15 knots, and the cutters saw their share of fire that day. CGC 29 was in the British sector when a marauding German torpedo boat attacked a group of landing craft. Other escorts chased the torpedo boat as the crew of the cutter saved 14 men from the craft that had been torpedoed. A group of four cutters were nearly fired upon by the British who had mistaken them for German torpedo boats. CGC-53 came under fire from a shore battery as they pulled men from a swamp landing craft. The battleship HMS Rodney opened fire, silencing the German guns. The crew of CGC-35 received the British Distinguished Service Cross for steering their wooden cutter through a sea of burning petrol to rescue the crew of a landing craft that had been blown up by a direct hit. And yet they did their jobs. By the end of the day the Matchbox fleet had saved over 400 soldiers and sailors along the Normandy beachhead, despite often being in the line of fire with many of the cutters taking damage, Rescue Flotilla One did not lose a single boat, nor a single Coast Guardsman. The Coast Guard played a vital role in Operation Neptune, operating many naval ships from large landing craft to the small Higgins boats that were dropping the soldiers at the shore. Four landing craft ships operated by the Coast Guard were sunk in Operation Neptune and several other Coast Guard vessels were damaged. It was the largest loss of Coast Guard vessels in the history of the service. 15 Coast Guardsmen died in the Normandy landings. Coast Guard Commander Quentin R. Walsh both helped to design the Mulberry Harbors that transformed the Normandy Beaches into giant ports, and also played a central role in capturing the French port of Cherbourg and returning it to service. He received the US Distinguished Service Cross. Rescue Flotilla One continued in service off the coast of France until the unit was finally disbanded in February of 1945. Some of the cutters had been in the assault zones more than 89 days, and had made the round trip between the Normandy Beaches and Great Britain more than 30 times, In their period of operation they were credited with rescuing 1,437 people. They were continuing the Coast Guard's long tradition of saving lives, albeit on a beach under fire thousands of miles from home, but that is the nature of the men and women who serve in the United States oldest continuing seagoing service, whose motto is Semper Paratus, always ready.
0: Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. Uh, We're a week early for the actual anniversary, but next week is an off week for us and for the podcast. And so I thought it was a good time now to remember D-Day. Uh, people talk a lot about D-Day. I, every time we mm-hmm. every time we have an anniversary every year, there's always a lot of talk about it, especially now, mm-hmm. I think, because we're getting so far away from it. And, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of our veterans
1: are Fewer and fewer away. veterans of yeah. D-Day around, yeah.
0: So I, I don't think it's crazy to say, you know, it's one of the most talked about parts of World War II. But it is. I,
1: for a Forgotten History Channel, we talk a lot about a very remembered battle uh, or campaign, uh, but it was such a broad campaign uh, yeah. that there's just so many different pieces of it that are worth talking about. And that's that's the fun that we've had is to talk, because you can talk about very specific little things that went on, or you can talk about some broad strategy or however you want to talk about it. I think there's still a lot of topics relevant to D-Day that fit for the history guy. Uh and, and, you know, we enjoy telling them, yeah. Yeah,
0: because, and I, I wanted to ask, you know, why do you think it is still important to remember this day and to talk about it as much as we do?
1: You know, I I can just start with, like I always say, you know, history deserves to be remembered. Uh, but uh, this really does represent the enormous sacrifice that people made uh, and the enormous challenges that they had to overcome. And, and, and so in many ways, it shows the best and the worst of, of humanity. And those are the things that you want to remember if you want to make a better future. So uh, if you want to see heroism, if you want to see terrible acts, if you want to see, you know, what we hope never to have to live through again, uh, but people that, you know, uh, you always wish that we have people like that available, you know, in, in, in the world because you might need them, uh, you know, D-Day is a good place to look for that. And as a you know, from a military standpoint, it was just an incredibly broad, complex operation that th- there really had been nothing like it previous uh, in in terms of its its size and its scale and what they were trying to do.
0: Yeah, I kind of feel we you know we talk about it enough that we I feel like end up kind of compartmentalizing it in the uh, the public mind into you know, mostly the, what Omaha Beach. Where it's mm-hmm. and we we kind of forget just how I mean it was an absolutely enormous operation. It's one of the largest absolutely, military yeah. operations in history, and I think that I think that it's good for us to to look into it and be like you know it wasn't just uh, the other beaches, um, but even just I mean and, like I talk so, about here,
1: <clears throat> so many different stories. Oh yeah, you know, we've talked yeah. about we've talked about the the USS Texas role and the USS Nevada role, and I mean the naval part of it was very fascinating. Uh, but I mean uh, we talk about the Coast Guard role. I mean. Uh, <laughs> and this, that's mostly looking from an american perspective but there were so many yeah. sub operations so there were so many deception operations uh, there was uh, the, it was truly combined forces so that you can talk about land air sea artillery infantry paratroops uh, uh armor whatever you want to talk about uh and so i mean it really is you know in terms of you know military history i mean you could you could spend your life dissecting everything that happened yeah. on the beaches of normandy
0: yeah the uh The paratroopers, I think, get a lot get a lot of attention because it was an awfully dramatic part of the uh, of the operation. And it's well, you
1: know, the the thing is, paratrooper operations have been relatively rare. They've not actually happened all that much, and you know, they don't get much bigger. I mean, there are some that actually include more paratroops, but they don't get much bigger than D Day. And that's where we really that's where the concept of mass dropping paratroopers was really tested.
0: Yeah, I. uh... I was I was thinking about this one and kind of how some of this how some of this episode works out and that so much of it so much of it actually these two episodes we talked about so much of it ends up going wrong and I to some extent that's the story of the paratroopers at D Day is that everything went wrong none of it was went according to plan and uh, they still were able to do incredible things just by being I, I mean.
1: It was, yeah, well, I mean that's that's one of the thing and it's one of the things that they think may be distinguished in some ways the way yeah. that the American army worked and some things like that. But I mean that they had to work just by initiative. Um, yeah. And it wasn't just the American the, the British the Commonwealth paratroops too. And I mean all sorts of I mean, where you were putting together improvised units and, and uh, you know, you had, you know, different command and, and uh you know, people had to arrive with all their equipment and they would still just throw together and, and go, you know, do things. It's incredible. Uh but yeah. it's also it's just it's it's terrible to think about these young men who spent years training in England and they got on an airplane and how many of them their glider or their airplane didn't even make it, you know, over yeah. over land or, you know, they landed in Water and drowned, or they, you know, were. I mean, it's Cotton trees and yeah, it's 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 terrible to think, you know, uh, the people that really never even got a chance. Uh, but it is amazing to see what uh, what the paratroopers did in the circumstances that they were in, and what they accomplished in the circumstances that they were in, and the absolutely uh, extraordinary people uh, that were in, in, involved in it, uh, and you know, just acts of heroism and and uh, that are. I mean, it's it's hard to even conceive today because yeah. that's just not ask ask of us anymore, you know.
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing to me that you know you land in an area and you're miles off course, possibly you don't know where you are. It's in the dark. Uh, Germans are shooting at you the whole time. <laughs> uh, just like I mean, like uh, Wright and Moore say in that in the episode we just listened to, uh, it's incredible that you, you land and you just find whoever you can find and do what you can.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, those those two. I mean, because uh, those infantry, those parachute infantry regiments had lost huge percentages of their command. Yeah, uh, and uh, those two guys were. I mean, they're 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 non-coms. They're relatively young. They've gotten very basic medical training. Yeah, uh, and they essentially, in the middle of that, they build a hospital. Uh, and then they just, on their own initiative, just go out and start saving lives. And it's it's just absolutely extraordinary because these weren't, you know, these weren't, you know, guys with medical degrees and lots of experience. I mean, this is their first combat operation. Uh, and they just went out and on on initiative, on courage, on a sense of what needed to be done, uh, they did it. And that's, I, I don't know a better definition of heroism than them leaving that relative safety of that building to go out with a wheelbarrow that they found and over bring and in over. casualties, uh, and, or the, the, this sort of humanity involved where they just treated casualties from both sides, just absolutely yeah. without, uh, without prejudice. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's just an extraordinary story. And, and do we, you know, you, you have to hope that whatever humanity faces that, that we have people like more and right that rise when you need them to.
0: I, you know they they landed without weapons yeah <laughs> and they were and they were landing in a in an absolute war zone. I mean, in a zone where <laughs> it, you know, units are yeah. mixed, people are shooting everywhere. I, I mean, there must have been all kinds yeah. of friendly fire. No well, one I'm, knows who shooting at. Imagine even
1: you know volunteering to do that. To say I'm going to oh jump gosh, out of it. Yeah. I'm well, volunteering to jump out of an airplane is crazy enough. But says I'm going to do, you know, one of the most difficult and dangerous combat jumps in history, and I don't even intend to carry a weapon to yeah. even I'm going to wear, an,
0: I'm going to wear an armband and hope that people see that and don't shoot me. Yeah, that's I incredible. Um, I did...
1: Was it typical...
0: Uh, for these kinds of, for you know, these kinds of medics to not have much medical training is that was that typical throughout the army? Yeah, or I mean, just, you know,
1: uh... everything was being expanded, so yeah, yeah. it was, uh, I, as I understand it, it, was especially coming up on today. It was fairly typical that people would be pulled for specialized roles uh, late in the game and and have really fairly limited training before going in, including including these medics. I mean, that the, the the people that were on the front line treating soldiers throughout the Second World War were frequently not you know, anything close to what you call a doctor, even what we, yeah. you know, would do with Navy or medics today or things like that. I mean, they, they they would have really a few hours of training and really just told to, you know, how do you immediately stop the bleeding and move them along? Uh, and then we, you know, we send them in there and say, uh, and do that while they're shooting at you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> in the, in the middle of combat,
0: while bullets are flying overhead while you're sitting in a church like Moore and Wright yeah. were and, uh, yeah, Germans Such and Americans story, are sorry. taking control. Well, it the turns out there's
1: there's two snipers up in the bell tower. You didn't even know. <laughs> yeah,
0: apparently they were they were just up there hanging out. They were just uh, I, up
1: there the whole time. Yeah.
0: It it would have been so easy for them to, I mean, to just stay in the church, even, <laughs> uh, which which still would have been brave, but it would have been easy for them to do that. And instead, they're but, they're going but they out didn't. They were find... going
1: all the time. They were going out and and going to f- seek out men who were injured and bring them back. And you know. they they weren't even necessarily. I
0: mean, it's. The fact that they weren't surgeons, they weren't uh, doctors, they didn't necessarily,
1: you know, know well, they were, how to deal with yeah, all of they, the they were, they were doing all that at. by instinct. Yeah, well, and, and they were still to willing to do. I like mean, it. just think about that. Just think about the blood and and what you're yeah. what you're doing there. And it had to be absolutely horrifying to any you know any twenty some year old kid mm-hmm. who came from farmland and is suddenly in the middle of France. I can't and, imagine I me mean, be prepared. It, it's it's absolutely it's it's such an extraordinary story in so many ways but i i think that it's probably one of of many on this one thing you're talking yeah. about i think that there were probably uh, hundreds thousands of instances where young men you know without uh, the right equipment with all all the right training you know, had to step up on their own initiative and do incredible things. And so it makes for such a fantastic story. And of course, that you can still go to St. Mary Glees, that the church is yeah. still there, that there's still bloodstains on the pews, that you can see the crack in the in the flagstone, uh, and, and uh, you know, that, you know, Bob Wright is buried there. I mean, for, yeah. I mean, gosh. Uh, uh, if, if there's a way to really see what every part of the human story of the Normandy invasion, uh, then that's a, that's one of those ways to do it. Uh, I extraordinary men, yeah.
0: I'm I'm blown away by it. It's impossible to to not be impressed by by their bravery. And I I think of you know when the American paratroopers are pulling back and they choose to stay in that church. I yeah. Well, it gives me shivers honestly to imagine uh, staying there and not knowing, yeah. having no idea. I mean, the Germans might show up, or they might just show up and shoot you. Uh, yeah. But they might take you prisoner. Um, hey, hey, you have no certainty that they're going to that they're going to you know follow the geneva conventions or yeah. and with what's going on right then you have i mean gosh you don't know if an artillery shell is going to hit the church and just blow everything yeah to bits. absolutely
1: or they're going to assume that there's unfriendlies in there and they're I mean the yeah. church took some friendly fire so yeah uh,
0: i i i just think it's 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 incredible and i i think this was a an incredible story to tell and i think you're right yeah. that ultimately there's there's thousands of these stories of these people who were just yeah. willing to uh Willing to risk their lives to do, uh, gosh, what they were sent there to do, but also go well beyond that.
1: Yeah, I, I have to say, I just love this episode. It's an early episode uh, of the History Guy, and you can tell, you know, in the audio and all sorts of things that we've learned But uh, uh, it's just, uh, I wanted to tell stories that had impact, that had heart, that you could tell in, in, in you know, in that sort of time frame, uh, that really would, you know, maybe uh, help you appreciate, you know, the importance of the past. Yeah, and so it's, and they are they are they are uh, men who deserve to be remembered.
0: Well, and it's clear that it was so deeply uh, so deeply affected them. The fact that that uh, Bob Wright was buried there, and yeah. that I mean you know set what sixty years later almost something like that, uh, the mm-hmm. fact that he after all I mean after all of his the rest of his service. And, still well, and that and the, the people
1: of St. Mary Glees uh, still re- remembered him and, and yeah. respected what he did and, and yeah. essentially, you know, venerate that that's, uh, you know, the church now the stained glass has paratroopers on it and stuff <sighs> like that. Amazing. I mean, that is that it's a whole sign of people who never want to forget, you know, what they went through. And, and I think they never want to forget because they never want to repeat it yeah. uh, because the moment we forget, the, it becomes more likely that it'll happen again.
0: In, uh, in similar form, the other episode we just listened to was uh, Rescue Flotilla 1. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's another one that I, I had not heard of it at all before yeah. you told yeah. the story and i uh, a truly
1: almost forgotten story that we just kind of fished up these these little boats that that we were using on the coast of america uh and we said hey just go into the war zone we're gonna take the gun off by the way uh, and <laughs> uh and, yeah, you know it's, it's just it's just a story there where fdr kind of late in the game uh or not fdr uh uh, 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 uh Churchill kind of late in the game said you know i you know, what about all the guys that just go to drink and and FDR is like well hey how about we'll just in the Coast Guard. Uh, and again, oh, so uh, young men that were uh, This is not necessarily what they were trained for. They were no. uh, I mean, they were incredibly young, if you think about it in today's terms, for what they were facing and what they were doing, uh, and just asked to just throw into it. And they saved all these lives i mean these, hundreds. They, yeah hundreds of lives and you know they they drove their little wooden boats through burning oil they they went on ships Crazy. that were ready to explode uh they you know the the guy who was the cook and he'd been given two weeks of medical training and, and the medical locker down in there and he was treating you know these these grievously wounded men and i mean it's absolutely an extraordinary uh, and, and the lives that they saved uh, yeah. you know it's just again uh, in the midst of some of the worst inhumanity in history, you find this incredible humanity and people that just rose to the occasion in a way yeah. that that you know gives you you know it gives you hope for the race, you know, for the for the human yeah. race. It really they says were, that, you, know, you know whatever the Coast Guard we run into,
0: you could not have imagined that when you joined the Coast Guard that you were expecting to. Uh, Go rescue people in an actual combat operation, combat
1: <laughs> yeah. That's probably not what they thought of when they enlisted. The Coast Thousands Guard. Of, of miles were, away from the, were, the... there were there were lots of coasties serving there at D Day and uh, many of them under in much more dangerous conditions because they yeah. were they were small boat experts than they were running the landing craft. You know, right in where the uh, attacks were going, the fire was going it was the deadliest day in the history see. of the United States Coast Guard was was yeah. June sixth, uh, and so they weren't the only Coast Guardsmen that were there. Uh, but y- y- you're right. I mean, they you know those boats were built for you know fishing people out of sunken boats and then they were had been you know rebuilt in order to use them to try to attack u-boat i mean imagine and, those little wooden boats taken out of u-boat uh and uh and that's you know they, they were doing off the coast and then they you know they 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 shove them on a boat and they send you to to uh england and then they, and they, some of them cross that channel hundreds of times yeah and uh, in those little boats,
0: people, you know in boats that are getting that are getting swamped or that are getting
1: hit and
0: you know there's no way yeah. that anyone on the shore that well, was shooting out was, a was in like, there was like, oh, and, and don't that, shoot that, that boat. That they
1: didn't lose any of them. I mean, cause there's a picture yeah. there where that boat has one heck of a hole in it. Right? For... <laughs> I mean, they were just kind of naturally buoyant so that if you, you know, if, if you got a hole blown in it, you could still survive. They were, they yeah. Were and they were saving before, before men were hitting the beaches. Uh, so yeah. their landing crafts were being swamped and these guys were pulling them out and saving their lives. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, it could be a kind of a, a similar story to the small boats of Dunkirk and things like that. I mean, there, there were, you know, the, it was an it's a place where there's been a lot of heroism there, you know the yeah. English channel. Uh, but uh, they are again, it's another story of uh, a, a contribution that there's so much going on at d day yeah. that it would be very easy to forget. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, you know a lot of people on that one say i never I never even heard of this. I didn't even know this yeah. happened. Uh, and so uh, they deserve to be remembered they, they were heroes. Uh, they were people who uh, faced things that we can hardly imagine today and uh, did so with a level of courage that, you know, makes you respect uh, what we can accomplish if we try and and, and the idea that they here were these men that served through d-day and all they did was save lives they never shot at anyone yeah that's i mean that's what these first two stories they come to i mean these are yeah. these are people without guns on d-day doing extraordinary things
0: and, and it's I, I mean I like that story, I like so. that this pair of episodes is is able to tell those stories in two very very different places in different ways, uh, yeah. they, you know they were serving very differently, but they they were saving lives and uh, ultimately you know that's one of those that's one of those things that has to be done throughout wars. There's always just grievous injuries, and thank God there's people like uh, Rescue Fotilla One or uh, Bob Wright and Kenneth Moore who are willing to willing to go s- save people and put themselves at risk
1: to do yeah. that. Good stories and stories that deserve to be remembered. And there's a lot more of them. I mean, yeah. there's just a lot more. It's not the only... Uh, I think that there's quite a bit more list of things to talk about in terms of uh, D-Day. Uh, and, you know, the thing is there's some like, uh, you know, Barbarossa uh, well, it was a much larger invasion. And a lot of those stories are, are forgotten. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, the records weren't kept nearly as well, especially on the Soviet side. and uh, So, I mean, one of the things about D-Day is that we, we can remember a lot of it now uh, but yeah. uh, you know we're losing the firsthand experience with it. Yeah, uh, but I, can't I mean, it's, that it's, it's better those... documented than a lot of other you yeah. know cases of what was going on in the Second World War. Yeah. It's hard to some of those accounts we must lose
0: when when these uh, yeah. these folks are dying. And it, it's, it's almost
1: universally what you hear from people who had uh, World War Two veterans in the family, veterans, is that they they never talked about their service. Yeah, I mean that was just part of kind of how the culture was at the time, uh, and that you know that means how many stories did we lose you know yeah
0: magellan tv is sponsoring this episode and they sponsor all of our podcasts and if you've listened to the podcast you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on magellan tv lately
1: and so what have you been watching on magellan tv there's always so much to watch on Magellan TV. So I was kind of poking around for something because Memorial Day is yesterday. Uh, and I was kind of poking around for, I mean, there's a lot you can see on Magellan, but I was poking around for war documentaries, which is one of the things, of course, obviously the history guy loves. Uh, but I kind of stumbled on something that wasn't what I was expecting to go looking for, but it was about the Battle of Capyong which is, uh, was a battle during the Korean conflict that was uh, Commonwealth troops. And it's really, uh, the battle is absolutely fascinating. It's one of those where, you know, hordes of Chinese troops are coming across. Uh, without this battle, Seoul would have fallen. And literally at the point where where MacArthur was least openly talking about using atomic weapons. I mean, if, if this group had faltered uh, and Seoul had fallen again, then there's a possibility the Korean conflict could have gone nuclear. And so I had never heard of this battle. And they keep saying throughout the throughout the documentary, that it's a forgotten battle and a forgotten war, uh, which is, of course, very much, you know, the vision of the history guy is that we remember those sorts of things. So it's called The Heroes of the Forgotten War, the Battle of Capion. Absolutely. I love Magellan TV. You know, you know, amazing what you can find on there at any given time. Uh, and this is one that you know really very much uh, felt like the sort of thing that we do with the History Guy, and that is to take a really forgotten instance uh, wh- that really deserves to be remembered and to, yeah. to bring light to it.
0: Well, and it's I think it speaks well to Magellan and to our mm-hmm. listeners that even, even the History Guy, who knows so many little-known historical events,
1: is always learning new things on Magellan. All the time. All the time. The only thing I would say about this one is I wish I'd seen it first because it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's a great episode. Of now we feel kind of cheesy to do it. I'll have to wait a couple of years before we take on the battle of Cap-Yar. What have you been watching lately on Magellan TV? I mean,
0: I was looking for something like you were. Magellan's doing a whole special thing uh, this whole week about uh, remembering soldiers. However, I ended up getting totally sidetracked. And what I watched was a British show, which has been on the air for a long time, apparently 20 years, called Time Team. Had never oh, heard of yeah, it. <laughs> had never oh, no, heard of I've Time heard of, Team.
1: Yeah, Time Team. Yeah, they have a limited amount of time to go do an archaeological dig, and then yeah. at the they'll usually have someone making something from the period too, so you can see yeah. some blacksmithing or yeah, yeah. Time yeah, Team, exactly. Awesome. And it was absolute hoot to
0: watch. I watched a random episode, it's season eleven or something like that. There's 34 episodes on Magellan. It's it's called In Search of the Bridgetine Abbey. They had three days to go in at this on this English estate and figure it out because apparently they had built uh, henry henry the sixth had built a a big abbey here and we didn't know anything about it disappeared it was just gone uh, under henry the eighth essentially and we were trying to figure they were trying to figure out like, well, what, what this what might have this have looked like? Because we just had no idea. Man, what they dig up there is I, it's incredible. And it's they're digging it up in three days, and they've got arguments between yeah. these experts on what they're what they're finding, which I think is a lot of fun because I think that a lot of archaeology is people arguing about what it is they're finding. What is um, it is they're finding,
1: yeah. It's a wonderful series. It's another yeah. reason to subscribe to Magellan TV, is that you can get a great series. Here's here's my story about Time Team. The first time I was in the UK, I could not visit uh Westminster after because time team was doing a dig that day and Ooh. so we, we couldn't get in. Had to ah, go darn, back to yeah, the UK in order for to go, go see, see, see the rest of Westminster. A... Yeah, it was just one day apparently, but it happened to be the day we're there. We're like, ah, oh, bummer. Gosh. And uh, uh, Big Ben wasn't running either. It was after they turned off the Westminster Chimes there for a couple. Uh, I'm like, oh, wow, what a bummer time to come down what here. A bummer. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but it's uh, yeah, it's absolutely worth watching. Magellan TV is always worth your time. There's so much, and man, you can just get mm-hmm. lost looking through that. There's always so many different interesting ones, from you know true crime to archaeology to uh, military history which they've got all kinds of awesome uh, history documentaries. It's really, it's really worth the subscription. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up. The History Guy talks about the landings at Omaha Beach and the courage of the U.S. Rangers units and the 166th Infantry Regiment. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with The History Guy.
1: It is June 8th, 2020, and 76 years ago, young men fighting in France referred to this as D-Day plus two. The action was still quite hot two days after the Allied invasion of Normandy began and some troops that were just disembarking then were still coming under fire from German positions. In the British sector the British 6th Airborne Division was facing a dogged counterattack by the German 346th Infantry Division and behind Omaha Beach men of the US 2nd and 5th Rangers and 116th Infantry Regiment were fighting against dogged opposition to rescue the remnants of three companies of Rangers that had been cut off from support. It was a day of action. It was a day of losses. It was a day that would culminate with one of those million acts of bravery that were such a part of the largest amphibious invasion in history and that deserves to be remembered. Of the five beaches assaulted on D-Day, the five-mile stretch in the middle called Omaha assigned to the US 1st and 29th Infantry Divisions turned out to be the deadliest. There are many reasons why the sector, sandwiched between the American landing and Utah Beach on the Allied right flank and the British-Canadian sector, Gold, Juno, and Sword Beaches on the left, was deadliest. But a good part of it had to do with the German 352nd Infantry Division. Allied intelligence had determined that the crescent-shaped beach was defended by a reinforced battalion of the 716th Static Infantry Division. The 716th was mobilized for occupation duties. An estimated half the division were non-Germans, men impressed into service from German occupied countries. Many of the German troops were elderly conscripts. The division had been stripped of its veteran troops who had been sent to fight the Russians in the east. The men of the 716th had never seen combat, but Allied intelligence was wrong. Omaha Beach was not defended by the 716th Static Infantry Division, but by the 352nd Infantry Division. The 352nd was a new division formed in November 1943 and originally intended for combat on the Eastern Front. The threat of invasion by the Western Allies has instead sent the division to France to defend the Atlantic Wall. The 352nd was a mix. Nearly half the division were recruits, some just 17 years old. But of the division's 12,000 men, some 6,800 were experienced combat troops drawn from divisions that had been disbanded on the Eastern Front. The 352nd was a substantially more experienced and dangerous unit than the 716th, but somehow Allied Intelligence had missed the shift, which had occurred in March. The Allied attack on Omaha Beach was divided between the US 1st and 29th Infantry Divisions. The US 1st Infantry Division was one of the American Army's most veteran. The division had fought across North Africa in the invasion of Sicily before being sent to England to prepare for the invasion of France. But the 29th was untested. Formed in February 1941, the division had shipped to England in October 1942 and spent the next 20 months training for the invasion. The men of the 29th were itching for a fight, and its 116th Infantry Regiment would be among the first to see that fight, landing on the west side of Omaha Beach, with the men of the 1st Infantry Division's 16th Infantry Regiment landing on the east. Among the men of the 29th was 28-year-old Frank D. Paraguay. Born in Virginia in 1916, Paraguay had joined the Virginia National Guard in 1931. He was only 15. He lied about his age. In the enlistment, his name had been misspelled Paragory, with an extra R. He had been awarded the Soldiers Medal, the highest award for bravery a soldier can receive in peacetime for saving a fellow soldier from drowning during a beach patrol in 1941. By D-Day, he was a technical sergeant with Company K of the 116th Infantry Regiment. A friend, PFC Felix Branham, said of him, He never tried to raise his voice. If he had a temper, I never knew it. He never tried to be James Cagney like most of us did. The men of the 116th would also be joined by two battalions of Army Rangers. The men of the Rangers were carefully selected and arduously trained. They had training in things like cliff scaling and repelling, as well as extensive assault training preparing to attack heavily defended beaches. The Rangers were given responsibility to attack a promontory called Point de Hawk. The heavily fortified position was the highest point between Utah Beach to the west and Omaha Beach to the east. Three companies of the 2nd Rangers were to land first, landing at the base of the cliff before daylight and using ladders to scale the cliff and take the position. If they were successful in capturing the point, they would be followed by the remaining two companies of the 2nd Rangers and the entirety of the 5th Ranger Battalion. Their goal was to destroy the guns and capture the casemates so that they could not be used by the Germans and then to move inland to the village of Grand Camp if that first attack failed, the remainders of the 2nd Rangers and the entirety of the 5th Ranger Battalion would instead land on Omaha Beach behind the 116th. They would try to move uphill and tank Point du Hoc via an overland attack. The initial assault didn't go as planned. Companies D, E, and F of the 2nd Rangers boarded their landing craft at 4 45 a.m. but in the rough seas, one of the boats carrying 22 men capsized and all but one of the Rangers aboard drowned. In the choppy water the boats drifted off course, but by the time the air was corrected the attack was forty minutes behind, and the remaining rangers, having gotten no signal, had already been sent to land on Omaha Beach. The Rangers took Point to Hawk and tracked down and disabled the guns there which had been moved, but now they were alone, cut off from support, and the Germans began engaging in determined counterattacks. They had trouble getting through by radio, and when they did they were told that no reinforcements were available. Their relief would have to fight their way up from Omaha Beach. But things were also not going as planned on the beach. Troops began landing on Omaha Beach at 630. The troops of the 1st and 29th Divisions were supported by Sherman DD or duplex drive tanks specially modified with canvas floating screens to allow them to move through shallow surf. The plan was for the initial landing force to have cleared the beach obstacles in approximately two hours allowing larger ships to bring in reinforcements for the troops to move inland with some hooking up with the Rangers at Point de Hoc. But everything was a mess. Rough surf swamped both boats and the wallowing DD tanks. 27 of the initial 29 DD tanks of the 741st Tank Battalion swamped while wading to shore. The boats that were not swamped were pushed by heavy current and could not find their landing areas because reference points were obscured by smoke. Troops were scattered, missing their landing points and leaving gaps between units. When boats did manage to land troops, many of them had lost their equipment, trying not to drown in the surf, and soldiers were seasick from the choppy ride. Soldiers were often released on sandbars up to 200 yards out and had to move through water up to neck deep at a walking pace under fire. When they got ashore they found out that the low clouds had meant that the pre-attack bombardment from the air had been ineffective leaving the beach defenses undamaged. Captain John Rand of the Fifth Rangers described the experience on the beach. And the rifle fire and the machine gun fire was just incessant as it cracked over our heads, as it hit into the breakwaters, as it churned up the turf, as it banged into the road next to us there was one horrible noise after another with a lot of nasty little noises in between. Radios were lost or broken, companies were disorganized and many leaderless. Some had taken 50% casualties before anyone had made dry land. The engineers set to clear the beach obstacles were likewise scattered trying to do their work under fire without infantry or tanks to cover them and having lost much of their equipment. The second wave of landing craft were hit as hard as the first. The first wave was not able to produce covering fire, and the incoming tide was now covering beach obstacles that were supposed to have been removed, causing havoc to the small landing boats. Vehicles coming ashore made easy targets on the narrow beach. Progress came slowly, and where troops made it off the beach, they were pinned down by machine gun nests inland. The objective of connecting the beachheads was not met. The foothold was tenuous. Fifteen men of Frank Paraguay's K Company were killed in a minefield at the crest of the seawall. The men of Company K spent the night near Beerville Road, far from their initial objectives, and more than six miles from the Rangers at Pointe-de-Hoc. The landings that day had gone so badly that Lieutenant General Omar Bradley, commander of the U.S. First Army, had considered evacuating Omaha Beach. Lieutenant Horace Henderson of the, of the 6th Engineer Special Brigade landed the morning of June 7th, and he said, The beach was literally covered with the bodies of American soldiers wearing the blue and gray patches of the 29th Infantry Division. On top of the point, a single platoon of the 5th Rangers had managed to sneak through to reinforce the Rangers. The planned relief would not make it to them that day. The Rangers faced counterattacks all night, and by morning had been driven back to a narrow strip, about 200 yards deep and 500 yards wide. Less than a 100 Rangers were fit for combat by morning. They were out of food, low on ammunition. They would likely have been overrun were it not for fire support from ships offshore, and help was still a long time coming. Counter-attacks the morning of the 7th compelled commanders of the 29th to keep four of the six Ranger companies behind to hold the perimeter. The remainder, including Captain Rand, tried to get to the Rangers on the point accompanied by ten tanks. They made it within a thousand yards of the point, but artillery forced the tanks to retire. The Rangers called in their own artillery, but a rumor of a counter-attack finally halted the advance. The Rangers on the point had to spend another night of counter-attacks, down men who had not slept for two days. By morning of June 8th, the Germans were preparing for a final counterattack, assuming the Rangers would finally be overrun. But relief was on its way, starting with the bombardment of the German position with hundred forty five-inch rounds from the Gleaves-class destroyer USS Ellison. But there was more difficulty. The Rangers had been fighting with captured German weapons, and the men of the 116th, hearing the distinctive noise of the German guns, attacked. Four Rangers were killed and three injured before a recognition flare stopped the friendly fire. Point de Hoc was secured and the Rangers finally relieved. But the Utah and Omaha Beachheads were still not connected and the men of the 116th and the Rangers were still fighting to achieve objectives that they were supposed to have met on the first day. They still had work to do on D-Day plus two. Supported by tanks of the 743rd Tank Battalion they'd been sent not just to relieve the Rangers at the point but to push through and take the German defenses at the village of Grand Camp The village of Grand Camp was some two miles away and situated on a hill that was covered with defensive fortifications. The approach by the coastal highway led across a small valley with flooded areas on both sides of the road and the enemy strongpoints west of the valley had extensive fields of fire from higher ground. Grand Camp would be the location of some of the most bitter fighting on D-Day plus two. Stopped by the fire from the hill the Americans called in an hour-long barrage from the cruiser HMS Glasgow. The German positions had to be taken in fierce fighting that some of the Rangers described as more severe than the fighting on D-Day. But the battalion was stuck by machine gun fire from a particularly strong position. They tried to take it out with tank fire and artillery fire but nothing worked until Frank Paraguay decided to take action. He worked his way up the hill some 200 yards under fire until he found one of the German trenches. Private Brandon described Frank's action. Perigoy stood up And firing his rifle from his hip reached the trench and leaped into it and with fixed bayonet he fired pausing to toss hand grenades an official account said he encountered a squad of enemy riflemen he fearlessly attacked them with his hand grenades and bayonet killed eight and forced three to surrender he led the prisoners out of the trench and delivered them to another man from his platoon and then he jumped back into the trench Branham said after what appeared to be an eternity he appeared again this time he had 32 Germans Paraguay had moved down the trench and single-handedly captured the Germans defending it, attacking them with hand grenades until the machine gunners there surrendered. His action cleared the way for the battalion to move forward, although more bitter hand-to-hand fighting was needed to secure the town. Barnum said, after some heavy action and the loss of many friends, it was in our hands by 9 p.m. The German defenses on the hill outside the village of Grand Camp were the Germans strongest position between the Omaha and Utah beaches and when they and the artillery batteries in the nearby village of Maisy were taken German resistance in the area largely collapsed 76 years ago today on D-Day plus two. The men of the 116th were put to work mopping up German stragglers and on the 11th were placed into the reserve so that they could reorder and reorganize following their losses at D-Day. For his action, Frank Paraguay was awarded the Medal of Honor. The citation read, The extraordinary gallantry and aggressiveness displayed by Tech Sergeant Paraguay are exemplary of the highest tradition of the armed forces. He wouldn't live to receive the medal. The 116th was thrown back into action on June 13th after just two days rest. The following day, June 14th, 1944, Frank Paraguay, while trying to single-handedly take a machine gun in the dangerous Bocage country, was killed in action his remains are interred at the American Battle Monuments Cemetery in Normandy. 75 years after his death, a road that was named in his honor still bears the misspelling of his surname that came when he enlisted in 1931. After the battle, some came to question whether the attack on Point de Hoc was necessary. The casemates were unfinished. The artillery pieces were in no position to threaten the beaches. But regardless of that controversy, scaling the cliffs at Pointe du Hoc is considered to have been an act of exceptional bravery. On June 6, 1984, on the 40th anniversary of the day, President Ronald Reagan said of the boys of Pointe du Hoc, strengthened by their courage, heartened by their valor, and born by their memory. Let us continue to stand for the ideals for which they lived and died. You know, we we talked about it a little bit before,
0: uh, but it is always amazing to me that in almost any military operation that we talk about, they are dominated by things going wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they talk about I mean, They talk about no plan survives, you know, contact with the enemy, but man, I, it still surprises me that, that so many things go wrong. Uh, chains of command are broken and how often we still manage to do something. <laughs> they still accomplish <laughs> what they're trying to do more or less sometimes in different ways than they expected. Um, but I think the story does, does an excellent job of emphasizing that. And one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about was what do you, what do you think was one of the mo- most important aspects to success at Omaha, given how many things
1: went, went wrong? It's really hard to say because they literally almost talked about abandoning yeah. that beach. Uh, and it was – I think it was just a matter of persistence, uh, because, I mean, the other beaches weren't hitting their objectives either. Uh, and so the, you know, the question is, could you connect these beaches and could they... So, I, I mean, I, I think there's a point, even though when they were talking about, when Omar Bradley was talking about, you know, do we have to give this up, uh, that that would have been extremely difficult to do. You know, how, yeah. do, you, how do you get them off of there? And so I, I, I think to an extent you didn't have a choice.
0: You're uh, already and, on and the over, beach.
1: over time, yeah, you're, you, and you have thousands and thousands of men there that you've got no good way to get them off that beach. It would be just as bad taking them off as it was putting them on. I mean, there were parts of, I I, I think think people are surprised how much, how many pieces held out. Uh, I don't know people, we were already into Germany. There were still Germans in France holding out. I I, I honestly, I don't know. I can't say what a a necessary key was. These young men didn't give up. They kept going despite not meeting their their, uh, objectives, despite knowing that uh, because they knew that their you know, the lives of other young men were involved if they didn't. Yeah. So that, you know, the persistence of the rangers that landed there at the beach and then had to fight their way back up to relieve Point du Hulk. that is yeah. that is absolutely, uh, again, it's one of those uh, stories of just heroism where, I mean, they yeah. knew what was on the line and they could hear, you know, the weapons of the rangers up there and they just weren't going to stop until they relieved them. Yeah.
0: I agree. It's difficult for us to say, you know, what what was the, the key. But I, I do think that, I mean, one of the things that, that, that we see is that Honestly, individual heroism is that when you've got people who are willing, who are willing to stand on the ground and we, it's really easy for us to look at, you know, all these maps, all these military maps that we've made and, you know, you draw the lines and it's, that all, that all looks fairly orderly and simple, but every, every step on one of those maps was, you know, those were taken by people. And yeah. and they had to, they had to, even though, I mean, gosh, those, some of those units on the, the beaches at Omaha where they're, you know, yeah. they've lost 50% well, of the hope. unit. Can imagine before they've climbing been, those letters, oh, with, those
1: ladders when they're shooting at them. But yeah, Omaha where your unit, your, your unit's just been devastated and you, you know, you keep going, you know, you're, you're you know, you're one of the few left and, and you're going to keep pushing and they're, you know, they're stuck up under the seawall and they were supposed to have been two miles inland. And yeah, yeah. I mean, uh it, sure, it certainly would have been easy to give up uh, and enough refused to. You know yeah. that they were able to, you know, persevere. Uh, so I think it's, a, I think it's a, again a great story. I think the whole story of this episode is that I was, th- it was going to post on the eighth and not the sixth, and so I just was kind of looking up what does D-Day plus two look like. And yeah. I think that's where I stumbled on stories like Frank Paraguay and uh, and uh, I wanted to talk about Point du Hulk, but I mean it's it's one of the more well-known parts of yeah. the D-Day operation, but uh, I. I I think people are much more familiar with scaling the cliffs than they were about the, them hanging on for 2 days and what the Gosh. relief meant and uh and I I just thought it was uh I thought it was worth it also to talk about why you know why they didn't send the rest of the rangers what went wrong that the, the timing went out and I think we we tend to talk about that like like it was this, this amazing operation and actually it was an operation where everything went sideways <laughs> yeah, uh, and it, quite easily uh, they could have been overrun uh, and and yeah. i mean it was it was very much in the realm of possibility that it, that would have been a completely failed operation uh, and it turns out you know for no good purpose because there weren't even guns mounted in the casemates uh, and uh, instead you know we, it's uh, uh, it's a story of how even when everything yeah. goes wrong uh, how uh, you can still manage to survive and succeed
0: i saw some comments that talked about how we didn't know that the casemates weren't ready until we were there and i i did see some reports that kind of more recently have come out that say that we had some intelligence that suggested that those were perhaps not uh prepared to defend Mm -hmm. the beaches but i wonder you know when we talk about you know then why do you still send them up there and i the thing is intelligence could be wrong and we saw Mm -hmm. in this episode how the intelligence was wrong about what unit was defending the beach and mm-hmm. that would have been an incredibly, uh, it would have been an incredibly dangerous site if it had been ready. Yeah. And if, you know, we think it's not well, ready, if you look but at it, it point was. Out, it
1: really does command the, the beach. Yeah. And uh, so, I, you know, I think, yeah, allies had to make a lot of planning based on, well, I mean, so did the Germans too. The whole point was they, you know, they didn't know where the attack was going to be. So they had to defend, you know, all the way from Norway to southern France. Uh, but uh, you have to, you have to plan under the assumption that there's things you don't know, I mean, whatever, unknown unknowns, however they want to want to talk about that. So, yeah. th- I mean, this extraordinary attack to have, you know, uh, and uh, to an extent, maybe it's that they had, you know, they had created the special unit, the Rangers, they had trained them in all these special things. I think they're probably looking around and saying, well, what do we do with them now? Well, here's a place where you got to climb a wall. Let's do that, uh, you know, and <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it might've been just, you know, they that this is where they felt they, they could use the Rangers, uh, but you're right. We, we really didn't know. And it turned out that there's a lot of things we didn't know that, uh, that really did impact the battle. So it's better that we sent them up there and it turned out those guns weren't in place than if we didn't. Yeah. And they were, I mean, because it yeah, was oh, terrible especially enough. With, yeah.
0: With as uh, tenuous as that, that beach landing and that beachhead was that, that, that might've been enough to, to really mess things up. I, and, you know, quite aside from the strategic, you know, consequences or advisability of the attack, the bravery on the part of the of the Rangers is just it's it's unquestionable. Oh yeah, well <laughs> you
1: you couldn't get me to climb that ladder in peacetime. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, hardly with with your crawling up to a place where there's just more people with guns and <laughs>
1: yeah, more, you know under. And fire, you're going to be stuck once you go the, going back down that ladder is not really yeah, an option. And they, and they had to know because of the delay that the the reinforcements weren't yeah. coming and they had to. I mean it was uh, and. You know they kept they were some of them died because they were fighting with German weapons and and yeah. you know and and so there was friendly fire and uh, I mean I, I think they they knew what they were going into and, you know yeah. to an extent I mean uh, at At D-Day, we were using mostly uh, young men that had been training for years, uh, hadn't been involved. They were mostly not like in safe and private mind. They mostly hadn't fought in Africa or anything like. They were mostly had spent two years in England training, and they were they were hungry for action. Uh, And uh, I, you know, so I think they went in, you know, really hoping to do their part. uh, And I imagine that uh, it was more horrifying than you could have imagined. You know, when two years went like oh, 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 and then you get there and you find out what it's like. But they. Uh, they persevered. They went on. And then the the stories, I mean, when we talk, you know, when that that episode goes on and, you know, you've got an infantry regiment that they're supposed to be pulled off the line for R&R and it doesn't even last a day. And they're, you know, they're fighting even though they've taken 40% casualties. And you went through all the, you know, the hell of the beach landing. And then they're like, okay, now, you know, we can't take this causeway. I mean, I can't imagine that That was such a horrible situation there where you're, you know, there's essentially one way in and it's completely covered by artillery and, uh, yeah, Yeah. it's, uh, and, you know, you get an extraordinary story like uh, Frank Paraguay and, and then, you know, within a week, uh, he's, he's just a regular casualty of combat. I mean, it's, it's a, again, it's a powerful story. Uh, that really tells you the drama of what was going on, trying to take those beaches.
0: Yeah, and it's a, it is. A, I mean, it's a tragedy with Paraguay because. But I, I think of the fact that we know, we know his story, and mm-hmm. we're able to tell it, which is incredible. But I wonder how many other people did such incredible things and stories that were worth remembering that we don't know. Yeah, you know, and that's uh that's it's it's. Yeah, no. I
1: mean, not oof. everybody who's a hero uh, has their story. Remember, not everybody who's a hero gets the recognition. Uh, I, I i understand I, I did not serve but i understand from from uh conversations with people who did that the you know the decorations aren't always you know necessarily to the you know bravest people there uh yeah. and and that so it, it's hard to say how many stories were lost uh yeah, so that's all the more reason to preserve the stories that we do have yeah. and uh, one of the reasons i wanted to tell us story one of the reasons for this particular episode is that it wasn't june 6th that it that, i mean that that they, they, they that struggle went on for quite some time there on the beaches. Uh, and, uh, by the time, uh, you know, you were two months later, most of the men there had served at D-Day had been already rotated out. I mean, uh, you know, we almost have an entirely new army at that point because, uh, of, of, what we put them through. Uh, and so there's, it, D-Day was simply a dramatic event, uh, or, uh, you know, Operation Overlord, or, I mean, D-Day is probably not the best term for it because the D-Day just means an attack day, and there were several sure. D-Days. But uh, that, that 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 attack on the beaches, Operation Neptune, part of Operation Overlord on, on, on June 6th, uh, was part of the, one of the largest military operations in history. Uh, and by some measures, it was the deadliest military operation in the history of the United States Army, uh, if you look at the entire Operation Overlord, uh, and that... Uh, I mean, that, that means that there's an awful lot of stories of, of courage in yeah. there. Uh, and in the broad, bigger battle, we don't want to forget those stories. Uh, because you know, for every story you are able to tell, there are many, dozens, maybe hundreds, uh, that that are lost now that, that didn't get to be told.
0: You know, when we talk about D-Day Plus 2 and stuff, it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine. You finally, the beaches are your goal. They're your main objective when you're landing. But once you have landed on the beaches. Even once you've secured the beach, that is yeah. barely the beginning. The the, initial the, the... <laughs> objectives
1: on the first day were miles inland taking, the oh, yeah. villages, Villages and stuff like that. And, and they're still stuck on the beach. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Uh, and the, those fights in the
0: days after uh, were just as vital because you could have gotten pinned down on the beach. And it could, I mean, gosh, we saw what happened at Dieppe or at Anzio, uh, Mm -hmm. where everything goes, everything goes wrong and you get troops just trapped on the beaches doing, Mm -hmm. dying. And this, so those, those days afterward and really expanding the beachhead were very vital to the, to the success of the entire operation. And just because we had managed to land on the beaches, you know, on the first day doesn't, didn't mean we had anything like uh, secured our landing in France.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Even at the point of the Battle of the Bulge, Patton was still arguing that the war could be lost in Europe, that we could be driven back again. Now, now we can look at it and
0: be like, ah, was you know, once once we were on the beaches, that was uh, that was it for the Germans. But uh, in in reality, I mean, if if the Battle of the Bulge had even just uh, succeeded in and you know in really breaking apart two armies, I mean, that could have threatened
1: the whole yeah whole success of the so it's it's on on June eighth. The hold on Europe there was still very, very tenuous. Yeah. Uh, the battle was far from won. Uh, and uh, young men who had probably not gotten sleep over the last four days were still being asked to go into incredibly difficult situations. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the story of of, of Normandy, too. It's, it's not just the story of that one day. It's the story of a massive operation uh, to establish uh, a beachhead uh, on Fortress Europe.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.